1: Published by American Funds Distributors Inc.
2: Silicon Valley has become one of the most mythical places in the U.S. Whether you perceive it as a haven for high tech innovation or a place of obscene power and wealth, one thing is for sure Silicon Valley's influence is undeniable. Since 1971, the tech industry has dominated the cities within California's Santa Clara Valley, from Santa Rosa to Monterey to Sacramento. But there's one city that's the root of everything Silicon Valley stands for, Palo Alto. This small city, less than 15% of the valley, is the home of Stanford University and many tech companies of the past and present like Hewlett Packard and Theranos. And the history of this place isn't just a regional story. It's really a global story. Because for better or worse, Palo Alto and the industry it spawned has remade our world in its image. I'm Sean Ealing, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Malcolm Harris. He's a journalist, critic, and author of the new book Palo Alto, a history of California, capitalism, and the world. This book is a massive, sweeping historical record that really began as a memoir. Harris grew up in Palo Alto, and as you'll hear, his inspiration to write about it stemmed from the weirdness he encountered while growing up there. And when he began writing this book, he was surprised to discover just how much has been sacrificed to create the tech behemoth that Palo Alto has become today. So I wanted to talk to him about everything he's learned while documenting 175 years of Palo Alto history. It is such a gargantuan book. I mean, how did this thing come about? It feels like something you've been writing your whole life and finally finished.
3: In some ways, it definitely is. I mean, a friend had to remind me that when I pitched my first book, Kids These Days, half of the material was this sort of Palo Alto material that I ended up pulling from that book. Uh, and so I'd definitely been thinking about it and working with it for a very long time. I want to start where you start in the book,
2: with this story about one of your classes in elementary school, where you have this rogue substitute teacher that comes in and says something very jarring to you and your classmates. Tell me what happened there and why it stuck with you.
3: Yeah, not a lot of, you know, individual days from fourth and fifth grade really like stick with you right into adulthood. But this is one that did because I wasn't used to adults acting unpredictably in my life. Like uh, adults were pretty consistent. And we had the substitute one day who sort of throughout the lesson plan and just started talking to us like as if she had broken through some wall and was bringing us information from the outside world. You know, I'm 10, 11 years old or whatever, uh, and trying to contextualize our living in Palo Alto and Palo Alto's relation to the world. And I didn't quite get what she was trying to communicate to us, although now I can imagine myself in her shoes trying to talk to fourth graders in Palo Alto, trying to tell them about the world but she told us you know it's like the rest of the world isn't like this you live in a bubble this is a strange place and as children who live there it's hard to like understand exactly what that means right it's like you're fish in the water but that her urgency did sort of stick with me what
2: was so weird about growing up there i mean did you feel the weirdness while you were there i mean you just you described Palo Alto in the book as as being haunted which is a colorful word i mean what are you getting at there
3: yeah the basic disjuncture that i start with is this it's a really nice place like palo alto is a archetypically nice california suburban town like suspiciously nice suspiciously nice right like everything's beautiful there's no like industry that you can see all the like office buildings are really set back from the street and hiding behind bushes the weather is extremely nice there's a lot of money obviously And at the same time, we had, when I was growing up, this youth suicide problem, and people understood it as a youth suicide problem, and it became national news that children in Palo Alto kept killing themselves, particularly on the train tracks that ran next to both high schools. And so this juncture between the nicest, most idyllic place in the United States, you know, if you're lucky, you can hope to live in the suburb of Palo Alto, with this youth suicide rate, which is horrific—you know, five times as high as the rest of the state—trying to investigate what are the preconditions for that, right? Like, how does this situation emerge, and why can't this town deal with it? And that's a classic sort of haunted situation, right? Is like the idyllic California town that's got something going on underneath.
2: I know it's a it's a hard question to answer, and maybe there just isn't a good answer, but. I do want to ask, why were so many kids killing themselves in this town? What was the story the community was telling itself about that? And what was the actual story behind that?
3: Well, it's hard. I mean, so much of that was what I set out to answer with the book, I guess. And I'm not sure that I come up with any uh, decisive causality. The, the CDC came in, you know, there was a huge outcry over a long period of time from parents of Palo Alto who happen to be very influential people. And so the Centers for Disease Control come in and report on the problem of child suicide in the Bay Area, in Palo Alto in particular. And they confirmed that, yes, it's really a, a problem. It's really happening. And no, we don't really have any answers. And that is sort of how the town has continued to handle it. And there have been attempts, you know, since I was a literal child to rectify the problem, but they keep running into this core contradiction, which is that the pressure that these kids are under isn't a problem. It's a solution, right? It's a a solution to creating the kind of workers and managers for capital that the system needs. And so when they, for example, one of the schools in Palo Alto as a plan to reduce stress was going to cancel zero period, which is a period before school starts when you can do extra work if you want to get up at six in the morning. And all sorts of scientists say, don't wake teenagers up that early in the morning. It's bad for their brain development, et cetera, et cetera. But when this proposal came down, it was the students themselves who really opposed it, who says, what you're doing is just putting more restrictions on us And some kids are always going to find ways around that. And so you're just making our lives harder. Now we have to find new ways to compete against each other if you take this away from us. And so they ended up not canceling that.
2: Okay, let's step back and set this up a little bit, right? So at the turn of the 20th century, Palo Alto becomes this, you know, becomes a home as it were, of like three really important institutions. You've got Stanford University, you've got the military-industrial complex, and big tech, or what became big tech. And the story you tell in the book, these three things are, are sort of interdependent and related incestuously to one another. So just tell me about that.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a real strategy from the beginning of Stanford University, right? So Stanford is this small suburban private school in California, way far away from the like core productive and intellectual strands in American life. And so the people leading Stanford, one of their thoughts at the beginning is, we're going to improve the reputation of our school really quickly by training up people in the specialties that are going to be very important for the world economy and the American economy. So we're going to train mining engineers. We're going to have the, one of the best mining engineering programs in the country. We're going to pull people from throughout the West, and we're going to specialize in producing these mining engineers who are going to go all around the world, make a bunch of money, and make Stanford look really good. This happens pretty much exactly the way it's laid out, Herbert Hoover being the the iconic example, and really boosts Stanford's reputation. And so that strategy is the same strategy that they take into electronics and avionics and radio into the radio age which becomes palo alto's core industry as the radio age turns to the the silicon age
2: the history of stanford is almost its own story but it's also kind of central to the the book and the broader history of capitalism at least symbolically you know like stanford has been not just this incubator of so many of the ideas that have come to shape our culture it's also this exquisite symbol of capitalist plunder, right, because of the land it sits atop and how it has embedded itself in the power structure.
3: Yeah, well, and Stanf- Leland Stanford himself really, he's the robber baron's robber baron, right? And this is the guy who found, just
2: some people know, this is the guy who founded Stanford.
3: This is, yeah, the founder of Stanford University, as well as the head of the railroad, the governor of California at one point, a senator from California at one point. A uh, real powerful guy in early California. At the same time, like a doofus, like an oaf, right? A lot of his contemporaries, including his co-workers, think he's a goof. And they sort of put him into this job, this frontman role at a time of really heavy ca- class conflict because he's the goofiest out of the four of them, right? Like he's not doing the real work. And so he's the front man for this group of robber barons. And so he becomes like the most detested robber baron. So Stanford comes by it honestly, right? Stanford University comes by this reputation uh, for producing capitalist oligarchs.
2: But why him? Is he just the the bumpkin who's in the right place at the right time? I mean...
3: Yeah, is he is just... sort of in the right place at the right time, but he's also the right guy at the right place at the right time. So he happens to be born near the Erie Canal right when the Erie Canal opens. And so his family's fortunes, they're like innkeepers in... New York, uh, near the Erie Canal, their fortunes go from like just some innkeepers to the innkeepers near the Erie Canal. And so his life gets a lot better and he's able to, even though he sort of screws up his first, a couple attempts at a career, he can still follow his brothers out to California, you know, on his parents' dime and take part in the gold rush, not as a miner, but as someone who's selling supplies, which was a great way to get rich in the gold rush, or at least rich enough to then uh, invest in something else.
2: So California is this great exemplar of American capitalism, right? It's it's the site of the original gold rush, and it's central to the formation of the railroads, and there's all this history of American wealth and exploitation. I mean, what distinguishes the Palo Alto chapter of capitalism from previous chapters, right? Is it a matter of scale, of technological power, all of the above, what?
3: So there's a lot of endless debate about when capitalism starts, right? Like what, whether it's the trading firms creating the global system, or whether it's agriculture in England, or there are a lot of different Marxist historiographies of this is when capitalism starts. But there's not much argument about when capitalism becomes a world system, when it becomes a full planetary system. And this happens at the end of the 19th century, with the incorporation of California, Japan, China, and Australia into capitalism. So you have this last link of the chain that goes all the way around the world, and now you have a capitalist world into the 20th century. And so California, as this last link of the chain, has a special place in the history of capitalism, And so this, as the last link in the chain, you become the first in the next phase, right? So you have technology from the start is your solution to problems. You don't have like past regimes that are putting in their own solutions instead. You don't have the remnants of feudalism so much. You got maybe a little bit of Spanish colonialism, but mostly you're talking about Anglo-American scientific technological capitalist power from the beginning of this Anglo-American period. And so that means that even though California's farms, for example, are like in the hinterlands as far as global capitalism is concerned, they're the most technologically advanced farms in the world still, even though they're in this hinterland. And so going from the edge, this last link in the chain to the center of the capitalist system, California really captures this dialectic that happens at the end of this 19th century, beginning of 20th where you have a new system rising all around the world.
2: For me, there's a, a very underappreciated part of the history here. And it seems important to understanding how we got here. Historically, like the, the East Coast has been the center of capital in America. You know, the, the Ivy League and Wall Street and D.C., all that. And you had these early West Coast entrepreneurs who struggled to get funding and because of that, and this is partly why California becomes a hub of the military-industrial complex, right? They have to turn to Uncle Sam for funding for a lot of the research. But as Silicon Valley grows throughout the the, the mid and, and later 20th century, it becomes more wealthy, and it develops its own sort of proto-neoliberal way of doing business, and it's it's very much ahead of its time. It's very anti-union it relies on a super stratified workforce with high skilled workers at the top and and a heavy reliance on discardable workers at the bottom it's about offshoring as much as possible mm-hmm. to reduce cost and boost productivity like everything we associate with like ruthless capitalism today is sort of embodied in Silicon Valley's way of doing business, right?
3: Yeah. And those ways of doing business are just as important to the success of the region as the technologies themselves, right? It's not that a lot of really smart technical people, and they all hang out in California, and that's where all the good ideas come from, which is sort of what Silicon Valley sells the world on, right? Yep. Is that we have some unique perspective, and that's why we're able to come up with all these great ideas here. And that's not really the case, right? There are plenty of inventors on the East Coast, also research universities in the Midwest, you know? And California is able to pirate a lot of these, pull a lot of people out, partly because it is such a nice place to live, and partly because they're able to collect capital from all over the world, including the East Coast of the United States, and invest it into these projects that might not have as much oversight as they have on the East Coast. But at the same time, it's important to remember that Wall Street was doing just fine. And so there's an idea that there's a conflict between like the West Coast and East Coast capital, And this does happen sometimes. And you see different moments in that struggle. Like during the radio age, a lot of East Coast capital sort of wrenched West Coast inventions out of the hands of their inventors and put them into capitalist conglomerates away from the little inventors. And so part of California still feels like, oh, we're those little inventors and like East Coast capital is just out here to steal our inventions and uh, make us go work for them. But Wall Street was the lifeblood, right? That was what was scaling all these operations is capital coming in from other places and not just Wall Street, but also Europe. So they're really intertwined.
2: I mean, we're sort of all children of Silicon Valley now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this, it veers a little bit into your previous book, Kids These Days, but this... This drive to kind of optimize our lives, to brand ourselves, the obsession with competition, the impulse to monetize everything, uh, the fear of precarity Mm -hmm. (laughs) that looms over so much of the the middle class these days, right? Like, that's all the stuff of modern capitalism, and Silicon Valley is a steroid-injected version of it, and they also happen to give us these tools, you know, like the smartphone and social media, that keep us more plugged in as consumers and allow corporations and the state to surveil and manipulate and bombard us and our attentions more than ever. I mean, it's a hell of a cocktail.
3: Absolutely. And it's important to think of, outside of the technological development, what the particular characteristics of the Bay Area and Palo Alto in particular are, right? So, like, before gig economy, gig platforms, gig work existed... Santa Clara Valley was the center of temp work. And you ask people, you know, you ask a 20-something, what is temp work? They'll say, I-, I don't know what that is. What's a temp? I have no idea. And you ask them what a what a gig is or what a gig work is, and they know exactly what you're talking about. But it's the same idea of remapping this employment relation and innovating on the employment relation to make the employer less responsible over time. And even before it was temp work, it was undocumented immigrant work in basements, right? And so, so much of the history of Silicon Valley is about the design and not the labor and the execution. And we've inherited that sort of
2: approach. Can I pause you real quick? When you say it's, it's so much more about design than it is the labor and the execution, what does that mean?
3: So when you think about early Apple, right, you think about Steve Wozniak wiring, you know, the Apple One or the Apple Two, and then you don't worry about who wires any of the other Apples that they make, right? It's just wiring the first one is the important part, and then the fact that the rest of them are wired by immigrant workers in basements throughout the Bay Area isn't particularly relevant to the Apple story, right, to the history of Apple as far as people are concerned. And that's partly because the industry took this, As it's ethos, right? And so you have the construction of what they called fabless semiconductor production, which is they figured out, oh, you can export, you can offshore all the actual wiring and the actual production, and we can just do the design here. And that's still ethos is still now, right? If you look at an Apple product, you read the back of an Apple thing. It says designed in California. Produced in China, right? or produced and those parts are actually produced in a number of different places, none of which are California. And so that program of being able to separate the intellectual work, what they understood as the design or the the real hard part, from the bodily labor is key to what we call Palo Alto System or the Palo Alto kind of capitalism that we don't even think about that, right?
2: Coming up after the break, Harris and I talk about the strange history that Silicon Valley has with psychedelics and why it's so revealing about the culture there.
0: Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience.
2: I really want to ask you about the history of Silicon Valley and psychedelics. Mm. I've always been interested in the countercultural movement in the 60s, uh, its potential and its abject failure. (laughs) And boy, does Palo Alto and Silicon Valley come to play a pretty interesting and big symbolic role in that history. You know, your section on this is titled Personal Revolution, and that's exactly right. Palo Alto becomes, you know, one of these centers of the the acid scene back in the 60s, right? And like, (laughs) these early business types... Mm-hmm. recognize the potential of psychedelics, not as a revolutionary tool for liberation and, and solidarity, but as a, as a productivity hack. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just unbelievable, right? I mean, you talk about this organization, which I'd never heard of before, the International Foundation for Advanced Studies in Palo Alto. And it was basically just a way to just dose the engineering elite to help them dream up new ways to own the future and <laughs> <laughs> or whatever right it's it's wild right and this but this is this is the way silicon valley thinks and operates right
3: yeah well in microdosing we think of microdosing as a productivity hack now and people talk about that as something that oh we just discovered this in the 21st century or whatever but that was what they were running experiments on from the beginning right they were dosing professional workers and then saying like well, did you, were you a better engineer when you were on acid, right? Did you come up with anything cool? Were you a better city planner when you were on acid? Were you a better, like, RAND analyst plotting uh, nuclear attacks on China when you were on acid? And their answers were sort of like, yeah, it works. It, you know, sometimes it, it does good. But the question is, like, for what, right? And so this is one half of the experiment is going on where they're trying to augment... High tech workers mostly with psychedelics, with drugs. And this is a parallel to computers, because at the same time, they're thinking, we're going to augment workers with computers. You know, you're going to be a super worker with all your computers. And sort of in the same milieu, another way of augmenting humans was giving them crazy drugs. And then if you took acid, it would augment your productivity. Absolutely something that's still with us today.
2: Of course. I mean, you've got, yeah, you've got microdosing, uh, which is, is all the rage out in the valley. And that's, it's treated as a as a performance enhancing regime.
3: <laughs> and it, but the guy, the guy who writes those papers for microdosing and introduces those ideas is the same guy from the Institute from Advanced Studies that you're talking about. So like it's it's one continual thing.
2: Yeah. And this is just to be clear, this is all relevant because like one of our deepest cultural and political challenges is hyper individualism, which obviously cuts against solidarity and community. And Palo Alto and you know, Silicon Valley manages to subsume the psychedelic revolution into a capitalist-friendly movement that foregrounds the individual over the collective. I mean, it's just, it's a really important chapter in, like, the capitalism remains undefeated story, right? (laughs) It's like how a bunch of hippies live long enough to become Reagan voters, right? I mean, it's it's just, (laughs) it's very telling.
3: Yeah, well, and we have to look about that history in the, like, struggle that's going on because it's produced out of struggle, right? It's like the personal computer, for example, comes out of a period where the computers were, almost all computers were located in public buildings because they were funded by the public, mostly in universities. And that's where they had all the computers. And what happened was Students got up and started bombing those computers because those computers were being used to conduct uh, American imperialism. Those computers were used to conduct the Vietnam War. The new left goes around and starts bombing computer labs across the country. And this is an under-discussed history of the new left, which is too often conflated with the counterculture, right? Then you think the people working in the computer labs are the same people who are bombing the computer labs, and you can't tell the difference because they all, you know, do drugs, that's not a very useful way of understanding the history. But you see the computer industry respond to this attack from the left by putting up fences, right? By pulling the computers out of public institutions and privatizing them, as well as shrinking them down in size so that they can fit in homes, right? Which are private institutions. You take them out of the public and you remove this question of community accountability for technology, right? That's one of the Black Panther Party's demands, for example, is community control over modern technology. And that's something they fought for. And so when you see the birth of the computer age, the personal computer age, right, the personal revolution coming out of this period, it comes out of this social conflict that centered around computers. And there were two sides. And so it's important to see the two sides, as well as the two sides of the psychedelic research, right? So in Palo Alto, you've got the Institute for Advanced Studies, uh, augmenting people, augmenting engineers with acid. And at the same time at the Veterans Hospital, you've got them testing acid on patients who can't complain, right? They're in this Veterans Hospital testing to see if acid would be a good tool for interrogating prisoners. And they're submitting all of these people who can't consent to participation in these trials to taking all sorts of psychedelics and prisoners and people held at foreign prisoner of war camps. And so it's not just augmenting engineers, right? It's also pumping some poor guy in a veteran's hospital full of so much acid that he can't think anymore, watching government scientists take notes about how they're going to interrogate communist prisoners.
2: Right. Again, and the deeper point here is, right, that like— Palo Alto does there in microcosm is what capitalism historically has always done, which is appropriate threats before they become <laughs> truly existential, right? You know, and this legacy stretches into the present in all kinds of ways. I mean, this is, you know, something you would written in your book, Kids These Days, is that, you know, look, if millennials are different, it's not because we're more or less evolved than our parents or our grandparents or whatever. Mm-hmm. It is because the people who came before us changed the world in ways that made us like we are. Right. I'm tempted to say that the world our generation inherited was born in Palo Alto. But one of the contributions of your book is this broader history of capitalism as this series of gold brushes. And in that sense, Palo Alto is interesting and destructive in unique ways, but very much part of an unfolding, repetitive historical process. And I'm very curious whether you think Palo Alto, and Silicon Valley, whether you think of them as birthing a new model of capitalism or really just fulfilling the logic of a system that was unfolding well before Palo Alto was a thing?
3: Well, I think it's both. I think the logic is unfold it's clearly is unfolding uh, in a way that precedes Anglo-American California because it has to come from somewhere, right? It's not like uh, John Fremont or Sutter or any of these people like... California popped into their heads. Uh, It was part of North American settler colonialism. They had uh, plenty of ideas about how to do that. And at the same time, it does become the vehicle for a real change and the emergence of a true, for the first time in world history, a true global system of production. So yes and no, right? There are very particular things about it, but the particular things about it are about its role in a larger general system. And it's the same thing for us as individuals, right? Or for the individuals in the story, right? They matter as individuals, but they also matter mostly because of the history and social forces that they're characterizing. And at the same time, you can only access those histories and social forces through the actions of individuals, which are the only things that do anything. So... Staying in that dialectic constantly, I guess, is where I try to keep the book because you don't, you can't come down on one side, right? Well,
2: one can't help but wonder when this roller coaster ride of history will finally stop spinning, right? I mean, even right at the end, right, that the rise of global capitalism has, has rapidly reduced a planet's habitability in fewer than two centuries. Does anyone seriously believe this place can survive that way for another two, end quote? If you're right, and you may well be, then what the hell comes next? <laughs> it's a good question. Should we all hop on one of those giant penis rockets from Jeff Bezos and, and colonize Mars or something?
3: I definitely do not think so. Although I think anyone who would like to, if they want to do that, they should really go for it. Hopefully using less social resources than they are currently. No, I think uh, space is a cold death trap. I'm I'm a terrestrial all the way. When you look objectively, I think there are objective planetary limits, right? You have to understand the earth as a limited system. I think anyone who's being rational about the world we live in, right? The the earth is limited. At the same time, capitalism can only understand limits as opportunities ever. Whenever you run into a limit, that is an opportunity for something new, for growth, for a different direction. In fact, that's the only way the system grows is by constantly running into the limits that's exhausting up to that point. And we see this in California very quickly, right? Like almost immediately, the mining becomes so destructive that they have to say, okay, 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 we have to do something different. We have to put this something out somewhere else. We have to stop this, even though we're making money because otherwise we're going to destroy it all immediately. And the way that they do that isn't like, you know, we're going to learn our lesson about ecology. It's, we're just going to figure out a different technology for exhaustion. We're going to figure out a different thing to exhaust, or we're going to go to a different place because we don't live there. And we see that now, right, where capital is constantly running into limits for expansion and then trying to come up with some new opportunity, some new technology. I think space is a perfect example, right? You're Like, oh, we ran out of land to colonize in the United States, but... We've got the whole world, you know, and then after that, well, we ran out of land to colonize in the whole world. But there are a lot of planets out there. I'm sure we can find a new one to colonize.
2: Well, and of course, the the point is that you and I won't have a spot on that giant <laughs> penis
3: rocket. Well, and if we do go, we're not going to like how it ends up. I mean, looking at the history, <laughs> and I think we can draw some important lessons from the history about labor recruitment into these projects, because they're constantly recruiting workers from different places and then screwing them as a group. <laughs>
2: Coming up after a quick rocket trip, Malcolm and I discuss what Karl Marx would think of Palo Alto today, and if this model of capitalism is sustainable. Support for The Gray Area comes from Greenlight, If you're a parent of teenagers, you might be starting conversations about money management and financial literacy. So often, the best way to learn is to do. But when it comes to money, there can be real consequences to learning the hard way. That's where Greenlight comes in. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on their spending and saving. And kids and teens can build money confidence and lifelong financial skills. My kid is way too young to talk money with, thank God. But I have a colleague here at Vox that uses Greenlight with his boys, and he loves it. If you want to help your kids learn about money, consider Greenlight. It's a convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and for families to navigate this stuff together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash gray area. That's greenlight.com slash gray area to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash gray area. You wrote something in the book at the very end that it lingered with me since I read it and I'll read it now and then I'll go on my little tangent. You ask a question and you say, quote, what's the point of being a species with the dual gifts of analysis and invention if we can't stop ourselves from despoiling the only home we've ever had? Now, you know, you take a very Marxist perspective on history and, you know, Marx had a kind of philosophical anthropology. And this is something I've wondered about since I first read him in school, right? I I really wonder if he was just wrong about human nature. Maybe human beings aren't as conditioned as he thought. Like maybe social relations aren't as determined by economic relations as he thought. Maybe a system like capitalism works because it reflects something deeply true about us. As creatures. And just going back to your quote, right? Like, maybe an animal with the gifts of analysis and invention is destined to be the victim of its own thought and cleverness. Like, I think Marx's critique of the contradictions of capitalism was correct, is correct, but he was also wrong in his expectations that the system would collapse under the weight of those contradictions. And maybe. He was wrong because that system is just ruinously compatible with human nature. And if it wasn't, it probably wouldn't have worked this well for this long. I mean, every instinct in me wants to say that we are deeply conditioned creatures and many other forms of life are possible. But I don't know. What do you think?
3: Well, I think looking at California gives us some really important insight, right? So the capitalism, in terms of capitalism working as long as it works or whatever, you're talking about it working for a long time. Well, California, we're talking about less than 200 years, right? And we're rapidly approaching, if not having already surpassed planetary limits, right? Ecological planetary limits. So talking about it works so well for so long, it's like, well, if you destroy the world within 200 years of instituting this new system, it probably doesn't work very well or for very long. Especially when you compare it to literally thousands of years of people living in this area without destroying it, right? And so when you read about what life has been like in California, the land we call Alta California, for the vast majority of human history and the time that humans have lived there, it's a very responsible way to interact with the world, right? And it's not like people didn't build anything or didn't... Uh, exercise their human capacities for analysis and invention during that time. Rather, they used it very well. They used it to understand deeply the people's relationship to their local environment and to the other elements of the local environment. And were able to maintain that land in very, very, very good condition in terms of biodiversity, in terms of uh, even human diversity, language diversity, etc., for an extremely long time. And so the imposition of this capitalist system, which has necessitated just waves of destruction at every level—human, animal, environmental, ecological, mental, etc.—compared to a system of social metabolism that kept people in solid relationship to the world that they lived, the particular world that they lived for a very long time— I don't think we're cursed as humans, right? It's like we're cursed as Anglo-Americans maybe, but uh, I'm not a religious person and neither was Karl Marx. And so when people talk about, oh, human nature, human nature, this, human nature, that, I don't really know what that means. I don't believe that we are endowed with a particular nature. I believe that we arrange ourselves in particular social metabolisms. And the one we're in now, rather than seeing like as inherent to human existence, seems rather uh, pretty destructive to human existence, not just in terms of our ecology, but also our individual being, right? Are people like happier or less happy? Are we uh, doing better or worse? And I know that there are some people who look at world GDP and say, we're doing better. And that's not how I understand human existence or other animals' existence (laughs) or existence in the world. Nor
2: do I. I think there's more important things to life than GDP.
3: Yeah. So if I can do anything with this book, it's to historicize capitalism, which is, as a world system, very, 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 very short. Even as a national system, very, very short. America as a project, very, very, very short. As opposed to the things that we're dealing with, we're dealing with planetary limits. That's literally everything in the world. (laughs) That is not very short. That is everything. And when we're weighing those two on a scale, and we're like, ah, which is heavier, two hundred years or everything ever? I'm gonna go everything ever, even if that's like gonna involve some struggle, right? Like that's it's hard to assert the value of everything ever in the face of two hundred years of planetary capitalism.
2: Well, it's just it can't be said enough, right? I mean, the just absolute like unprecedented explosion in wealth creation that we've seen in the last three, four decades has also occurred alongside just an enormous rise in inequality, right? And you just spin that out on a slightly longer timeline, and that's not sustainable.
3: No, well, unless you really, truly believe in the existence of a natural hierarchy. That's an important set of beliefs within Palo Alto that's maintained from the beginnings in eugenics to now with people like Peter Thiel and the PayPal Mafia cohort and effective altruism and all this stuff. If you truly believe some people are naturally better than others and that there is some spectrum where people are rated according to the quality of their being and that there's a natural hierarchy that relates to that then you really do believe that like equality is tyranny and that any sort of the imposition by the government of equality between people is unnatural tyranny. And Silicon Valley deeply, deeply believes this.
2: Yeah, but even if people like Teal believe that, I mean, deep down in his bones, what in the world makes him think that is sustainable, right? Even if you think the great unwashed herd out there are you know less than barbarians you know how does he think that you can keep them from the gates forever at some point a society becomes too top heavy and it becomes precarious and unstable and it falls i mean you don't have to know much about political history to know that so i it that's the delusion part of this that i've never been able to square i mean maybe this is part of the fantasy that you know, they can just they can take everything they possibly can from this world and then just flee it, a la don't look up, right? In the end, like that's ultimately, they've, they've got the escape pod. But like, it's hard for me to believe that people like Teal or anyone who really believes this, it's hard for me to, to accept that they think that this is a sustainable way to, to run a society.
3: Well, they've done it for 200 years, right? And the answer isn't really, I think that the escape from Earth answer is the one they like to give because it sounds very clean, but the actual answer is to shoot a lot of people and to pile their bodies in a hole. That's how you maintain control as a minority in a capitalist society, and there are plenty of examples of it through this history, right? And I think they fundamentally believe that's justified to maintain the true natural hierarchy. And ultimately, that's what Silicon Valley's tools are for, right? The first generation of silicon chips didn't all go into rockets going to the moon. Again, talking about escape and space as the like clean, nice version. They went into nuclear weapons. And they went into nuclear weapons where it was the entire strategy of the United States for maintaining its place in the world to threaten everyone in the world with their universal destruction.
2: You close the book by endorsing this call to return the land in Palo Alto and Stanford to the indigenous tribe it was stolen from and you know you admit that that's almost certainly not going to happen for lots of reasons people can surmise all on their own but you make a good case for why it should happen beyond the obvious it's the right thing to do why do you think that would be such a symbolically potent move if it were ever to happen
3: i've gotten a lot of different responses to that ending because a lot of people think I'm sentimental, some people think I'm being unserious, and some people think I'm being very pragmatic. I think I am I am sort of a mix between those things, right? I think on one level, it's a very, very, very pragmatic solution. How to return land to people who can responsibly take care of it is a crucial question for the United States right now. How to reconcile the crimes of settler colonialism with the people who still have ancestral claims to territory in North America. Crucial political question right now. And the book was written in the shadow of conflict around that, right? There's a indigenous movement in the United States right now for control over territory and the relation between territories. So this was written in that light, and I think it's an ongoing conversation that this is just stepping a toe into. But I do think it's very realistic because you've got the Stanford administration, you know, they got 8,000 acres that has not been sold. They've held on to this territory because the covenant with the founders uh, has been respected, unlike the covenant between ancestral people and their land, which has not been respected. We did respect the Stanford saying you can't sell this land. So they've got tons of it that they're not using or whatever. We know that. Left-wing university uh, boards make all sorts of unaccountable, wacky left-wing decisions all the time. We hear about that, et cetera. They have acknowledged the Muwekma Ohlone as the ancestral title holders to the land. Stanford has, unsurprisingly, a a land acknowledgement that acknowledges that. They have returned remains from their collections to the Muwekma Ohlone, even though the tribe is not a federally recognized tribe. Stanford still recognizes them. So the legal and political precedents are all there, right? The Moek Ohlone are not just like the vague indigenous people who used to live there. They are people. <laughs> they are a politically constituted organization with which Stanford already acknowledges. So the ingredients are all there. And for an organization that's as closely tied to American settler colonial capitalism as Stanford— to seed land, to say, you know, we're not the best guardians of this land, and in fact, it isn't the rightful, rightfully ours, it isn't even rightfully the United States, really opens a door to thinking about other land and other spaces and other claims in the United States. And in terms of the ecological effect of something like that, you think of Stanford putting tens, millions of dollars, whatever, into a new climate school, which they're doing into uh, whatever ESG investments they're making with their tens of billions of dollars in their endowment, they could do something that's qualitatively more advanced than that by recognizing that they don't have either the credentials or the title to care for this land and that there are people who do. Do I see them doing that? I don't know. Maybe they could. You know, Maybe they, they show me that they have more flexibility than I believe they have. Oh
2: come on! All right, look. I promise not to psychoanalyze here, but I, come on—it feels like you're feigning hope here because you can't bear to live without it. Well,
3: do I think that they're going to turn over all eight thousand acres and thirty billion dollars to the Muekma next year? Like, no, I don't think that's going to happen. I say it in the book, but could they, you know, turn over some land? To could they turn over land that the five hundred? members of the Muwekma tribe could live on, for example, in the Bay Area where housing prices are extremely high, driven by the activities of Stanford University, such that the people who have acknowledged ancestral tie to the land can no longer afford to live there? Can Stanford set aside land and return it such that the members of the tribe that they acknowledge have this ancestral tie can afford to live in the area? Yeah, they can do that. They could do that tomorrow if they want And is that less realistic than people who call for full employment or Medicare for all or, you know? Is that is that a less uh, realistic idea than that? Pragmatically, I don't think so. The mint the coin, a trillion dollar coin. Is that more realistic? Uh, I, that's crazy.
2: I mean, <laughs> I don't even know what's realistic or not anymore. But at some point, it, it almost doesn't matter. You, you know, what has to be done has to be done. I mean, I, but again, I go back to the symbolism part of it, right? I mean, I don't think you're blinkered in, enough to think that, like, even if that happened, that's somehow going to turn the tide of history and, and put our planet back on a, a more habitable. Trajectory, But if you think of Stanford and Northern California as an exemplar of a certain style of capitalism, which is to say like a certain kind of orientation to like the world and people and profit and, and a whole system of values, right, based on extraction and exploitation and wealth above all else, there is a lot of symbolic power in that kind of action, you know, even if it wouldn't by itself materially like change things symbolically, it would mean something.
3: Certainly. Well, and concretely for the people who would live on the land, it means a a whole lot. And for the, you know, the land that they would be caring for. So that, that means a lot, but it also, if they can't do this, it also tells us something important, right? Because what we're talking about is in the con, you know, it sounds large. People think of it as a maximalist demand, right? Return Stanford. But in terms of the settler colonization of California or North America, we're talking about the little piece of land, right? Like an itsy-bitsy little part of land. And like, sure, it's nice land, but what? You're going to return
2: lousy land? Stanford has like a $1 trillion endowment that they could, they could build. <laughs> I
3: think it's literally $30 billion, right? It's like you could give them a couple billion dollars and a 1,000 acres without noticing, more or less, right? If they can't do that, that also tells us something important, right? Which is that reforms that might put us on the path to dealing with our problems at the scale that they exist are not possible. If the system cannot even start walking down that path, right? If they're incapable of ceding territory, if all they can do is build more climate schools or invest more money in electric vehicles or whatever, then that tells us that the powers that be can't be convinced to fix our problems.
2: If you and I are both pretty sure what you're talking about here won't happen because it would require capitalist actors to behave in ways that totally undercut the logic of capitalist action. <laughs> I feel like that does leave us in this story in a bit of a dead end. And I feel like it leaves us in a, a pretty cynical position, in which case, what is the argument for, for persisting?
3: One of the lessons that I think we can draw from the new left and that I try to like sketch out through the new left's experience in the 60s and 70s is their experience with reform and revolution. And so you have people in Palo Alto who engaged in every kind of reformist activity, right? You have protests against napalm manufacture where they're laying their bodies down outside the factory you've got petitions, you've got articles, you've got books, every sort of Gandhian nonviolence reform tactic that they could come up with to try and stop the Vietnam War, to stop American imperialism and environmental destruction, nuclear proliferation, things that are analogous to what we're dealing with now. And what they found constantly is that even when they got into the room with the decision makers, they got right in front of them, they were able to present all their research that they got about what's going on in the world, they couldn't change people's minds. And they came to understand that that's because people's minds aren't there to be changed, right? That's not the job of, like you said, agents of capital is not to use their personal discretion about what's the most reasonable path. It's to act out these impersonal injunctions about capitalist growth and accumulation. And at a certain point, you realize you're not dealing with someone who has the freedom of reason. You're dealing with someone who's acting out a set of impersonal instructions. And at that point, you can stop negotiating, right? And then you have to look at actual struggle, right? How are you going to stop what's going on? Not just how do you convince someone that it's not the best idea, because then all you're going to do is convince somebody to quit their job, and then someone else is going to come in and do the job that they just quit. And that was a, a wall they ran into. And they obviously didn't win, right? But that doesn't mean that the system is closed forever. And when you say Karl Marx didn't predict you know, capitalism would last this long, there's this letter that I found, and it's one of the few letters where Karl Marx talks about California. And he only talks about California a few times. He's writing in the 19th century, but still California. He's looking out to California. He's like, wow, capitalism is really happening out there in California. And he writes this letters, and I think it's Angles, where he says, you know, with California becoming capitalist and China, and they're really like branching the Pacific, it seems like these revolutions in Europe are just going to lose, that we're in this tiny corner of Europe. The European revolution is going to get crushed as capitalism is going to grow Throughout the whole Pacific world, like we're just not going to be able to, to build a counterforce at the time in a way that's able to defeat them before they're able to use this territory. And then, <laughs> you probably should have underlined that one a little bit more, right? Probably should have put that big bold in some book because that's totally what happened. And I think this book is the, in some ways, the history of that happened, right? It was a capitalist response to the European uprising into of the 19th century to colonize California, to build this world system. But now they're reaching the edge of that world system, right? They're constantly finding limits. And so the final limit isn't going to be something that they find on their own, right? It's going to be something that they, is caused by conflict. Eventually, they're going to lose. And either they're going to kill everything on the earth, they're going to use up the whole place, or someone and some social set of social forces is going to stop them and figuring out what that set of social forces is, how it constitutes itself, and in what way we struggle. History is useful for that, I think.
2: Yeah, well, we can go on forever here. Uh, I know. know. And I'll just say, Malcolm, this is such an ambitious book, and and there was no way to do it justice in, in an hour, but I really enjoyed reading it, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Once again, the book is... Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World.
3: Thanks for having me, Sean.
2: Eric Janikas is our producer, Patrick Boyd engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. That was a bit of an unwieldy conversation, and it kind of has to be because it's an unwieldy history, but a really important one. And I thought Malcolm and I hit some of the really important parts of the book, but there is much, much more to the story, which is why I suggest you check it out for yourself. As always, let us know what you think about this one. Drop us a line at, the gray at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share it with your friends on all of the socials. Our next episode will be out Thursday, February 23rd. We're off on Monday. See you then.